0: Welcome to Regulated and Relational, the bi-monthly podcast produced by the Attachment Trauma Network. Today, Ginger and Julie are talking with Guy Stevens, the founder and director of the Alliance Against Seclusion and Restraint. We're going to learn more about his why and how his organization is championing ways to make sure that our most vulnerable students are not traumatized or re-traumatized at school. Let's join them in the studio to learn more.
1: Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Regulated and Relational, our podcast produced by the Attachment and Trauma Network. I'm Julie Beam. And I'm Ginger Healy. And we're excited to share with you from both our personal experiences and our professional knowledge, what it truly means to be attachment focused, trauma informed, and how we can help children impacted by early childhood trauma.
2: And today we're welcoming into the studio, a kindred spirit and dear professional, and personal friend Guy Stevens. Welcome, Guy.
3: Thank you. Thank you so much.
2: I want to introduce you to everybody. Guy Stevens is a lifelong resident of Maryland, a father, a husband, and an advocate for children's rights. His journey in advocacy began as a parent, advocating for appropriate accommodations and supports for his neurodivergent son. Guy is currently a member of the board of directors for the ARC of Maryland. Guy is a member of the Council of Parent Attorneys and Advocates, COPAA, and presented at their 2020 annual conference. He's also a presenter at our conference and other conferences as well. He's actively working to change policies and practices around the use of restraint and seclusion at the local, state, and federal level. Guy is the founder and executive director for the Alliance Against Seclusion and Restraint, And we love Guy because he believes that we can do better for all children and adults with intellectual and developmental disabilities, and if we can, then we must. He understands that we need to embrace neurodiversity and neuroscience to create safe and inclusive environments to ensure equal rights and opportunities
1: for all. So let's start our conversation today where we like to start with all of our guests and tell us how you got into this particular work. Why did you form an Alliance Against Seclusion and Restraint?
3: Well, the simple why is that I'm a father and my son was inappropriately restrained and secluded at a school in Maryland. You know, digging a little bit deeper into that, you know, I never had any plan of starting an organization. I never had any plan of finding myself as a children's civil rights advocate. You know, my son was restrained and secluded at a school, like I said, here in Maryland. And the first time, you know, it happened, I had never even imagined that restraint and seclusion were things that might happen in a school. It never had crossed my mind that due to any reason that kids might be put into a room forcefully against their will with the door held shut. It never, you know, really occurred to me that, you know, kids might be held by several adults to the floor, to the ground, or these things had never really crossed my mind. And unfortunately, as life is, you know, a lot of things don't cross your mind until you have a personal experience. You know, when it happened to my son, it was traumatic. In fact, the very first time it happened, he was only six years old. He was out on a playground. He didn't want to come in. Things began to escalate. They eventually physically restrained him, carried him in and put him in an empty office. The t- words of restrained seclusion weren't even used at that point. They just, mm-hmm. well, this is what happened. You know, we fast forward a few years and he'd actually done really well in school for a number of years, had great support, great staff, great relationships. But at the end of the fifth grade, you know, there was a tragedy in his school he had a teacher he'd been working with for a long time. She was in a car accident. And without that key support and relationship, he began mm. to have some difficulty. And other staff worked with him differently. You know, they were very compliance focused. They were not really focused on the importance of kind of the attachment and relationships. And unfortunately, he began to have some behavior. And, you know, what I would say is he was getting overwhelmed. He was choosing to kind of leave and hide in a bathroom because he felt so overwhelmed. And on two of those occasions, he was physically restrained drug down a hallway and thrown into an empty classroom. I can't even explain how traumatic that was for him. I went and picked him up the second time, but it happened. I'd never seen him so upset or dysregulated, but we ended up after that it was towards the end of the fifth grade year homeschooling him for the next two years, not because that had been our plan or we thought, you know, we were going to be able to provide a better education, but, Because he was afraid to go back to school. And, you know, we decided after a lot of soul searching that, you know, the best thing for us to do is understanding how he feels to homeschool him. And we did that for two years before he decided on his own he wanted to go back. And he made that decision. We supported it. But at that point, I was a bit more aware of restraint and seclusion. Wasn't an expert by any means, but aware that what they had done to my son should not have happened. So I talked to the school, you know, as we were getting him back in to make sure that, you know, they would work with him appropriately, that they understood if he was feeling distressed, what did he need? And unfortunately, despite all of our best intentions, uh, he went back into the public school system in the fall of 2018. He was there for 15 days. He was restrained and or secluded at least four times. We think it was probably seven or eight times. They only reported two of the instances that had happened. But again, we were back to where we were before. We were back to a kid that was afraid to go to school, you know, that was traumatized by what had happened to him. You know, we had to get counseling. We had to work through some of the impact of the trauma. It's really traumatic. And, you know, even though I live in a state because we have no federal law that provides mm-hmm. oversight to the use of restrained right. seclusion. I live in a state, Maryland, that happens to have better laws in terms of restraint and seclusion. But despite that, you know, my son was really restrained and secluded in a way that didn't meet the legal standard. Our legal standard says you don't restrain or seclude a child unless it's a crisis. You've tried other things and you need to do it to protect the child or someone else from imminent serious physical harm. And imminent physical harm has a legal definition, but essentially it's a life or death situation. My son was restrained and secluded for splashing water. Once yeah. for throwing a book, not at somebody, just throwing a book. So, you know, that's where all of this began for me is after it happened that time, I made a promise to my son and my promise was simple, but the promise was I'm going to do whatever I need to in my power to make sure this doesn't happen to you again. And ultimately that promise led to a significant amount of research. It led to understanding who was being impacted, what the impact was. And that in fact, there are better things that we can do. So that's what really started me down the road of forming the organization. I formed the organization about three years ago, because once I realized that we weren't alone, this just wasn't happening to us. I mean, we've got probably over 17,000 people now that are part of our social media and, and part of you know our community here with the Alliance. It's happening a lot more than you think it happens. And you know, every time it happens, it leads to... Trauma. It can lead to serious injuries. It can lead to the death of a child. So, you know, I started this because of the promise I made to my son. But once I understood the scope of this and how it was happening to so many more kids and understanding who it was happening to, I realized that I couldn't just put this in my rearview mirror and keep driving. I had to do something to change it. So that's kind of the story of how things got started.
2: You kind of hit on this already because you've got such a large following. It tells me that this is not you know, just one case, obviously we know that, but how widespread would you say restraint and seclusion currently is in schools?
3: Well, you know, it's hard to answer that question accurately, despite the fact that there are federal reporting requirements around restraint and seclusion. So we've got through the Office of Civil Rights as a part of the Department of Education, a data collection effort. And part of that data collection effort requires data on restraint and seclusion. Every two years, and that's been going on since 2009. And if we go back to 2009, in fact, probably one of the precursors to that was there was a report from the Government Accountability Office who did a study of restraint seclusion in schools and residential treatment centers and other places. And they have a report titled Restrained Seclusion: Selected Cases of Death and Abuse in Public and Private Schools and Treatment Centers." That's the title of the report. Okay. So back, you know, over a decade ago we knew there was a problem. They talked about hundreds of cases back in their report. If we look at the data we have today, the Department of Education data typically tracks probably around 100 to 120,000 instances a year of restraint seclusion. Now, I would tell you that that data is largely underreported, and that's not just a matter of opinion. We can go back to 2019. The Government Accountability Office came out and said, hey, Department of Ed, There are issues here with the data that you're collecting. You need to do more to make sure that data is accurate. If you talk to any parent of a child that has been restrained or secluded, I would bet you there's a 95% chance that you will find out that their cases have not been fully reported. I think about my own case of those instances I mentioned to you first one wasn't reported, second two weren't reported. Next time, at least two out of you know, four cases weren't reported, and we think it happened more. Mm-hmm. There is a tremendous amount of underreporting that happens. Also, that federal data doesn't include data for non-public or private placements where many children may end up mm-hmm. after not being successful in a uh, public school setting. So to give you an example here in Maryland i'm going to go back to about 2 years prior to covid to give you a better data set but if you look at the data prior to covid we had in Maryland probably about 28,000 instances of restraint and seclusion Maryland one out of 50 states did not make up 25% of the federal instances so right. if you do that math it's not conceivable that Maryland would have been that high what what's conceivable is that there are many states that aren't reporting accurately we have non public schools in Maryland the non-public schools account for about half of our total restraint and seclusion use. And that's a trend we see that as you go from a more inclusive setting to a more restrictive setting, whether it be going from an inclusion classroom to a segregated classroom, to a special education day school, to a residential facility, as you go up that line, you find that kids are more likely to be restrained and secluded. So back to the original question, Gee, um, I really wish we had an idea of how often this was truly happening. Because even with that Maryland data that I mentioned, that includes a lot of underreporting, uh, mm-hmm. at least through my assessment. So let's say Maryland could have had 40 or 50,000 instances. And then you multiply that out by the number of states that we have. And you think about it's happening a lot more than people think. And what we find, and this is part of the reason I start the alliance, because when it happened to me, I didn't know anybody else that had been impacted. Right. Now I know tens of thousands of people that have been impacted. And in fact, I ended up meeting people in my own community that I never knew had been impacted. Mm -hmm. This happens to your child. Children are blamed. Parents are blamed Mm -hmm. when behaviors are, in fact, often manifestations of trauma, of disability, of other things. But, you know, parents aren't always eager to say, well, this happened to my child. So, you know, even with parents You know, they may not report things that are happening. They may feel blame. They may not want to come forward. But, you know, now knowing that we've got this community of people that have been affected, it's Mm -hmm. happening a lot more than you think.
2: And when you talk about community, too, when I've heard you speak before, you talk about the disproportionate numbers of gender or race or Mm -hmm. neurodiversity that are impacted with this. And as a mother of a son with autism, that really hits home to me, you know, the vulnerability of it all.
3: And, you know, I mentioned, you know, kind of my initial research and I didn't go into it right away, but we can kind of walk through some of that. But that was one of the first things I wanted to understand was who's being impacted by this. And as you begin to look at the data, here's what you find. It's disproportionately kids with disabilities. If you look at the federal data set, which is the best national data set that we have, Yet, as I told you, it is probably significantly off. But as we look at that data set and just take it as a section, 80% of restraints reported to the Office of Civil Rights are children with disabilities, Mm -hmm. 77% of seclusions. Now, if you think about the population, uh, which might be, uh, what is it, around 12% of our total enrollment in schools across the country are kids with disabilities, yet 80% of restraints nowhere can you not look at that and think, oh, gee, this is a civil rights issue. You know, this is Mm -hmm. something that is so grossly disproportionate that it is absolutely there's no question about it being a civil rights issue. We know that kids with disabilities are heavily represented. Black and brown children more likely to be restrained and secluded. And that problem even goes upstream further. I mean, it goes into even things like diagnoses, child with a autism diagnosis versus a you know, emotional uh, disturbance or other kind of diagnoses, Mm. we find that there's racial disproportionality there as well. And the kinds of interventions that are being used, but you look at restraint and seclusion, black and Brown, far more likely to be restrained and secluded. It's more often than not very young kids, Mm. five, six, seven, eight years old. Now the federal guidance out there, and again, there's no federal law, But the federal guidance out there is very similar to what I mentioned with Maryland law, which says you don't restrain or seclude unless there's a crisis situation. You've tried all other things and you've got to protect somebody from an imminent danger of serious physical harm. So it's a life or death situation. Think about that when you think about five and six year olds. How often are these five and six year olds really posing a life threatening situation? But according to the data, that's what it is. Now, I have a theory. And the theory is, we look at the data, it's more prevalent with five, six, and seven-year-olds. As you get to middle school, declines sharply. By high school, it's almost non-existent. That is not because it's working. Uh, that is because as children get bigger, people have more pause about physically restraining or secluding them. So we know it's disabilities, black and brown, very young kids. I would take it a step further and say kids with a trauma history if you have a trauma history to me there's a huge intersection i talk about this a lot but between trauma and disability the very presence of a disability in your life may make the world more difficult it may make the world more challenging you may have trauma associated with your disability if you're autistic perhaps non-speaking the world can be traumatized when you're trying to communicate and no one understands your needs or your wants but even with you know less extreme examples You know, if you have been growing up with a disability, there has probably been trauma in your life related to the disability. So we see a lot of intersectionality there. And if you have trauma, you know, what do we know about trauma? Well, trauma impacts the brain, right? And we know that it's not just a matter of, you know, metaphorically saying trauma affects the brain, but we know there are actual changes that occur in our brain in response to trauma. And what do we know about those changes? Those changes, of course, make an individual more likely to be hypervigilant more likely to always be on alert, more likely to have kind of a overactive threat detection system, right? right? And what happens when a kid doesn't feel safe when they're in school, what happens when they're hypervigilant is they're more prone to behaviors. Behaviors that I would say are often stress-induced behaviors, uh, behaviors a, a teacher or other might look at as challenging behaviors, but you know these are typically kind of bottom-up stress behaviors. And a kid that has those behaviors is often met with what? compliance demands. Mm -hmm. The initial response to behavior is often a demand for compliance. And when kids are having a difficult time meeting what's currently on their plate and not feeling safe, as you pile those demands up, the situation escalates. And as that situation escalates, of course, it can lead to restraint, seclusion, suspension, expulsion. And then we further traumatize kids by our reactions. If you restrain a kid, That's extremely traumatic. And yet often in education, there's this idea that, well, we physically restrained Timmy on Monday, but Tuesday he'll be back and we'll work on a plan. Tuesday he'll be back. You want him to return to his trauma site to be back to work on a plan. We have a total blind spot to the fact that, wow, that was a really significant event. So, you know, again, to your question, it's again, disability, black and brown, young, Traumatize mm-hmm. kids that are far more likely to have this happen. And the bigger point there is that the more you're doing this, the more you are traumatizing them, the more you are likely going to be actually causing some of the behaviors yes. that might've gotten the child restrained you or secluded in the first ahead. place. So it is a cycle and it's not one that's helpful.
1: So much of what you said is so critically important that not only are you likely dealing with a child who's bringing their own trauma history and adversities to the classroom and their nervous system is therefore already set higher, like a thermostat set higher than a neurotypical child's nervous system. But then you are introducing a trauma to them and you are not recognizing that. They're revisiting that trauma over and over again. That was such a powerful example of, you know, your expectation as the adult is that they're going to come back in and the slate's going to be wiped clean. What would even make us think that? Because adults who've been traumatized are not going to come back into the same situation and have all of their relationships with the other adults intact. I mean, we know that. It doesn't take rocket science to figure that out about ourselves. So why would we assume a child would be able to navigate that system any differently.
3: I mean, if you were the victim of a violent crime, you know, returning to that trauma site the next day would not even be something we would think about. And again, I'm not trying to say that in using restraint and seclusion, the intent is to be violent, but I'm saying right. that that is a physically, you know, aggressive act. And the other thing to kind of think about in terms of the trauma is it's not just the kid it's being done to. Mm-hmm. It's also children that happen to be witnessing this happen. So if you see a kid being restrained or secluded, okay. let's just use an example and say you're in a segregated classroom, you're with other neurodivergent children. And here you see as an intervention, when this child's having a hard time, they are physically restrained, pinned to the ground, drug off to a seclusion room. What do you think that's going to to your sense of safety? And, and, and I would say it even goes a step further into if you're an adult and ultimately you end up using a physical restraint on the child. When that happens, the child is no longer making decisions. They are going into a survival state. They are working from their lower brain, their amygdala. They are responding to a a threat. And at that point, their arms are going to swing. Their legs are going to swing. They're going to kick. They're going to spit. They're going to do whatever they can to get away. Their prefrontal cortex is not available for rational thought. And what happens to the adult in that situation? Well, the adult may likely enter that fight or flight response as well. Yeah. And in entering that fight or flight response, their adrenaline is going to increase, their blood pressure is going to increase, their you know veins are going to dilate, their heart rate is going to increase. All these things are going to happen. And they're going to begin to lose some connectivity as well with their prefrontal cortex, which makes it so very dangerous. But the further point is that the adult that goes through that also experiences trauma. And the trauma that they experience, this is really interesting, because the trauma that they experience makes it more likely that they will feel unsafe. And if they feel unsafe, it makes it more likely that they will make a decision in the future to use something like restraint or seclusion, which they believe Mm -hmm. is going to help maintain safety. So the fact is the more someone uses restraint or seclusion, the more likely it is they'll return to that as an intervention in part due to their own trauma that they experience. So it's really this cycle. And that's why we sometimes see some kids it's happening to hundreds of times, and I'm not mm-hmm. making that up. Right. Some staff members that seem to be doing it much more frequently. Again, they've experienced trauma. Their trauma response is also a lack of feeling safe. And their response is to do something that they know when in fact, you know what, what we talk about a lot, or there are far better things we can and should be doing to better support the kids, to better support the staff.
0: You're
1: telling us all of this very valuable information that mm-hmm. I hope to our listeners, to some of them, if it's new to you, that you really listen to it and take it to heart. Because really, what you're saying is, we have a practice that's happening in the schools, it's happening disproportionately to the children who are most vulnerable. And what is happening in the middle of that is that it is not only traumatizing the children that are being restrained and secluded, but the other children that witness it, and I can testify to that as a mom of a child who did witness those things. She wasn't officially threatened that that was what was going to happen because of her behaviors, but she, that was how she internalized the message, mm-hmm. you know? So she was terrified, right? So her behaviors then escalated because of that. It's also traumatizing the adults in the system and it's either making them more traumatized in a distressed way or it's making them more aggressive because of this it's not a tool that we should just have on our plate for behavior management by any stretch
3: you know and what i would say you know kind of sharing my own worldview on this is that you know this is kind of where we are with the alliance as well is that you know when we look at seclusion seclusion is and i want to be very careful with the definition because people sometimes get confused by well what about this or what about that? Mm-hmm. But seclusion is really taking a child, putting them into a room or area. They're there involuntarily. So you're putting a child involuntarily into a room or area, which they are prohibited from leaving. And they're typically alone. And you know, with seclusion, it's not a therapeutic practice. It is not helping a child to regulate. In fact, if I were to take you forcefully and put you in a room and pull the door shut and hold it shut, That would be terrifying. That is not at all therapeutic. I mean, a lot of the things that I'm sharing are things that I've learned from listening to people like you, to people like Dr. Mona Della Hook, to people out there doing really amazing work on all of this, Dr. Stephen Porges' work. But, you know, if we understand, you know, a kid goes into one of those spaces, it's terrifying. You're there against your will. Now, a kid might go into a room like that and bang and scratch and try to get out. They may scream, they may yell. You know, they may be there. 15 minutes, 20 minutes, they may eventually kind of rest against the back wall, seem to kind of slouch down, put their head down. That's not calm that you're witnessing. You know, that's what people think sometimes. Oh, the child's calmed down. That's the brain going into a shutdown or free survival state. Kids often go into a dissociative state at that point Mm -hmm. as well, but there is nothing regulating about being put into a room against your will and having the door held shut. So, you know, from the Alliance point of view, we don't think seclusion is ever an appropriate intervention, just full mm-hmm. stop. It's, it's not something we should do. There are far better ways to support kids when it comes to restraint. What I would say is that if you look at, you know, restraint in a circumstance of truly a life-threatening circumstance, if my child or your child or someone else's was going to do something that could get them killed, that could get them seriously injured, would I want you to intervene? Sure. But yeah. restraint should be exceedingly rare. And it's not. It's often used more for control, for compliance, for power struggles, all of these Mm -hmm. other things. So, you know, when we look at these in the greater context, again, uh, you know, I don't think seclusion should ever be a practice. Now, is it okay to have a quiet room where a kid that is sensory stimulation can go because they need a place to get away from it? I sometimes need a quiet place. Yes. Absolutely. Now, if you're, forcing them in there and you're holding the door shut. That's a different thing. But if that child say able to say, Hey, I need a break. Can I go? Sure. Mm -hmm. You know, my son in third grade, they had a little room. There was a trampoline. There were things that they could do and kids could go in there if they needed that kind of break. I'd love to see more kids in outdoor spaces myself, because I think there's a lot of regulation that happens outdoors, but you know, also what kids really need is relationships, you know, relationships to help them to regulate when they're having a difficult time. So, you know, I just wanted to be clear kind of on that. I mean, when it comes to these interventions, you know, I think some of these things, you know, seclusion.
1: I'm so glad that you cleared that up and that you brought up the differentiation between the two so that we are all very clear. And then also went on and sort of answered what would next be a follow-on question is what about spaces for children to calm down themselves. And I think that one of the steps that we miss when we don't look at the neuroscience in all of this (laughs) is that children who aren't able to regulate themselves and have more of a propensity to get dysregulated, it's a skill they don't have. And that works for when you're talking to parents, who send their children to timeout? Timeout isn't a bad strategy if what's happening in timeout is the child is really chilling out, you know, getting their frontal cortex back online and able to come back and be regulated. But that's only with a child who has got that skill. And a lot of children who are neurodivergent, children who have been impacted by trauma and adversities, have never co-regulated enough with an adult, as an infant, or through any stage of their life, that they're able to go into a room and calm down without a lot of coaching and intervention. And so when we have these spaces that we create for children, and we're well-meaning to do it, even if we insist that they go there, then it becomes more like a seclusion, more like a punishment, then they don't know what to do when they're there. So they're not de-escalating. They're not calming down. The relationship is where you get the opportunity to show them how to use the tools and to encourage this in a positive relational way. And we miss that step. It's a challenging step for us to think about doing, but it's so yep. valuable. Yep. It's the same yep. way we would teach reading or math or anything That's else. That's
3: right. What I love about what you said is, you know, I think about Dr. Mona Della Hook's work. She often talks about how kids actually lack the developmental capacity to self-regulate. Right. They've not learned that skill. And of course, you know, if we know anything about brain development, the brain kind of develops from back to front through that myelination process. And what happens is the last part to get really fully developed is our prefrontal cortex, which is our rational decision-making, all of those things, a lot of where our ability to self-regulate come. So kids, when they're very young, lack that ability. And, you know, I've heard it said before, and I love this saying, don't know who to credit it to, but the, the kids, when they're very young, Kind of need us to lend them our prefrontal cortex. Mm-hmm. They need us to help them. And even when we're older and we may have skills, I mean, how often might you, you know, Julie, feel dysregulated and be like, "I need to give Ginger a call." We regulate, you, yes. you know, through each other as well. So, you know, Dr. Della Hook looks at this idea of, you know, capacity. Uh, Dr. Ross Green and others look at kind of like the skill versus will mm-hmm. that a lot of behaviors come not because. I'm willfully trying to do things, but we work in a world where a lot of our systems are developed around behavioral approaches that I believe are outdated, very driven by behavior itself and not understanding the neuroscience or what's going on underneath. And as a result, a lot of our systems are really revolving around will, not skill. So when a kid's having a hard time, we say, well, gee, what do we do to motivate them? Because it must be a matter of motivation.
1: Motivation, right? So what
3: do we do? We offer rewards and consequences. Right. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I love the work of people like Alfie Cohen, who'll say, you know, well, rewards are the same thing as consequences. Mm -hmm. Consequences, They're they're extrinsic motivators to say, if you do this, you're going to get this, or this is going to happen to you. They're not effective at really helping kids develop skills. If I were to pose a question to you that you didn't know the answer to, and you said, I don't know. And I said, well, gee, how about I give you a dollar? And you said, well, I still don't know the answer. And I said, well, how about I give you a few dollars? You said, I still don't know the answer. And I said, well, how about $500? doesn't matter. If you don't have that skill, you can't do it. It doesn't mm-hmm. matter what we mm-hmm. offer as an incentive if a kid doesn't have the skill. So you're right. absolutely right. I mean, a lot of our approaches need to be based on how do we help build skills? You know, if a kid has a difficulty with reading or math, we have an intervention that helps them to learn those skills. We don't right. hold a reward above their head and go, okay, right. I know you can't read very well, but here's a cookie if you can read that. Yeah. Um that's not what we need to do. We need to work on skills, mm-hmm. we need to understand developmental capacity. There's a lot of changes that need to happen kind of upstream as well and we need to be proactive and moving away from let's look at things that deal with a crisis. Let's help build skills and build capacity and build relationships so we can avoid a crisis in the first place.
1: Yeah.
2: I really want to get into all of that because what you're really talking about too is this paradigm shift because when I talk to schools or educators, sometimes a lot of times I'll hear that whole rhetoric of, well, we did the restraint and seclusion because the child brought it on. You know what I mean? Like they're not even seeing the shift in why it happened or what was underneath the behavior, that this was a natural consequence in their mind. Or if you do this behavior, you know, here's the consequence. It's this whole paradigm shift of why we got to this spot in the first place. I continue sadly to hear that from a lot of schools that this is their only option in their mind and that they've been trained in those type of restraining moves, restraining moves. Yeah. Right. I'm using air quotes, restraining moves. And so we still have a lot of paradigm shifting to do. And then I also really want to get into the options and strategies mm-hmm. and where we go from here, because there is so much hope in
1: that. And that's all the
2: good news that you also have brought mm-hmm. with you.
1: I think we'll give Guy a chance to answer and respond to you. The other thing I want to point out to the audience, because I know a lot of our listeners are educators, I don't want any of you ever thinking that we're, oh, educators do this, blah, blah, blah. What we're saying is that as educators, we don't necessarily know what the skill sets are that we need. We need to back it upstream to learn relational skills and regulation skills and understanding how we view a child's regulation. How flipped is their lid at this point, to quote Dan Siegel, so that we can help them regulate before we get to a point where things are imminent and dangerous. And we have to take a bigger tactic to stop that because ideally that's what we want. And we know that that's difficult in today's classroom. So there's a lot of things that have to change. Yeah.
2: I appreciate that clarification though, Julie, because we do have such a heart for educators and the hard work that
3: they do. You made a lot of great points. I'm going to try to remember them all, but uh, I'll do my best and you can prompt me. But first, I want to comment on that. And, you know, I want to be really clear, you know, the Alliance Against Seclusion Restraint, we are a really broad community. You know, I mentioned that we've got a growing community, probably about Mm -hmm. 17,000 now on our social media and other following. But our community is made up of a lot of parents of kids that have been physically restrained or secluded. We have a lot of self-advocates, a Mm -hmm. lot of autistic self-advocates, others who have themselves experienced restoring seclusion. Some of them who are now advocating for changes in their board of education in their Mm -hmm. states. We also have a lot of educators. We have a lot of teachers. We have a lot of paraprofessionals. We have a lot of administrators who are also very dedicated to what can we do better? What can we do differently? And of course, we have attorneys and other advocates and other people involved, but we are not at all uh, anti-educator. In fact, Mm -hmm. I would say the opposite is really true. Really, what we want to see is safer schools for students, teachers, and staff. And we firmly believe that you can reduce and eliminate these practices while making everyone safer. Mm -hmm. And while restraint and seclusion are often used in the name of safety, What we find is that the moment you go hands-on with a child, what happens? Fight or flight, right? We've got a fight or flight response. The chance of someone getting injured goes up astronomically the moment you have someone in a fight or flight response mode. That fight or flight response mode of the child may be a contagion to the adult as well, who may also enter that fight or flight response mode. And I would say will likely enter that fight or flight response mode. And at that point, again, the chance of someone getting hurt goes up astronomically. So anything we can do to prevent going hands-on is going to make everyone safer. Now, why is this a challenge? Part of it is, you know, these are things that have been kind of in the proverbial toolbox for a while. These are interventions that, you know, okay, well, this is what we do in these situations. And honestly, if this is what you've been told to do in these situations, it can be hard to imagine that there's another solution. If you don't know of another solution, it's hard to imagine that it even exists. So that's part of it is how do we advocate for some of these other approaches and other solutions to reduce and eliminate these practices? And what I would say to you is that was one of my starting points. When I began advocating, my very first advocacy was actually local. I began to advocate in our school district. And one of the first questions that I was asked by an educator was, well, what else do you want us to do? What do you expect us to do if this happens. And the first time I was asked that question, and I'd like to say the first and only time I was asked that question, that I didn't have a good response. I took it as a challenge and said, I'll be back and began doing a lot of research. And it was through that research that I began looking for alternatives, began trying to understand what's a better approach. Now here at the Alliance, we today, if you said to me, well, what's your general approach? I would give you some general things that we would recommend. So we typically support a trauma-informed approach. Mm -hmm. And of course, when I say trauma-informed, trauma-informed unfortunately has become a little bit of a buzzword, right? Everything's becoming trauma-informed. But what I really mean is not, we've taken a a half-day training on being trauma-informed and we're now Mm trauma-informed. What I mean is a school where it literally changes the fabric of what you're doing, where you have a trauma-informed lens from the kids to the administration, to the way that you work with teachers, even up the line if you can. I believe to truly create a trauma-informed space, it needs to be throughout the fabric of the system. Uh, I always look at our friend, Matthew Portell, and the work that he did in Nashville with the Fall Hamilton Elementary, and really not just being trauma-informed for kids, but being trauma-informed for the teachers and staff. That's really critical. So we believe in trauma-informed approaches. In that, of course, we believe in the importance of neuroscience. You know, we learned more since the 90s related to the brain, related to trauma, related to behavior than we had known in all of time that existed before that. Yet much of what's being done throughout our systems is still based on 1930s and 1950s science, a lot around operant conditioning, a lot around things that started around pigeons and rats and dogs. When in fact, I think that there are far better things that we can be focused on in understanding the way the brain responds to stress. So we believe being neuroscience aligned. We also believe in being relationship driven. I can't say it enough that relationships are the substrate for success. You know, you've got to have those relationships. And, you know, one of the things that we see commonly at the Alliance is we find a kid that is being restrained and secluded and, you know, they're being told, you know, it's the only option. We can't do anything else. You know, we've tried other things. The kid moves to a different classroom. It all stops. What has changed there is not the kid. The kid is not changed, but it's very often the adult and the adult approach or the relationship that changes. And one of the things that we've got to be really reflective on is how much our approach and involvement influences situations so you know i think about dr bruce perry talking about contagions and our own emotions being contagions right you know if we approach something from a command and compliance standpoint we're putting people instantly on the defense if we approach something from a relational standpoint we're connecting we're trying to support people and i think that you know again i'm such a firm believer and i know i'm not the only one to say this but you know when you talk about schools you talk about the three r's of schools It's relationship, relationship, relationship. That's the key. And then the other thing we talk about is collaborating. You know, too many of our approaches with kids, and again, the most vulnerable kids, the kids that we're talking about here, are compliance-based. And if we really want to be successful, we need to stop doing things to people and collaborate with them, just like we would do with another adult. You know, Ginger doesn't want me coming in and saying, okay, well, here it is. You've got to do this, this, and this. We want to collaborate together, work together. I'm a big fan of things like collaborative proactive solutions, Dr. Green's approach, but it involves not focusing on what we're doing to kids, but trying to work with them. So in our run-on sentence here, it's a matter of how do we move away from this? Well, it's trauma-informed, neuroscience-aligned, relationship-driven, and collaborative approaches. Now, That's great philosophically, but the point is, well, what do you do instead? And that's where it comes down to finding alternative approaches. I'll talk about a couple of them, and I'm not going to go into a lot of detail, but I'll tell you that this is where a lot of my research began. In my school district, Calvert County, Maryland, we have about 16,000 kids, not a huge district, but not a tiny one either. Before I began this work with the local school system, the year that this happened to my son, We had probably around 750 seclusions and around 600 restraints. Not a big school district. As of about a month ago, got the mid year data for the school district. They had, I believe, 10 restraints and there was one seclusion. Seclusion will be completely prohibited next year in their policy. They made significant progress. So, what did we do to get there? Well, the biggest thing perhaps that you need to change is something that I can't point you at a certain training for necessarily. But you've got to change the culture and you've got to do that from the top up. You've got to start with how do we change our culture? How do we move away from kind of these punitive approaches? So you've got to get buy-in from superintendents, from school administrators, from others. You know, I do some training as well. And part of that focus is on like, how do you get people to realize that this is really important and needs a change? But beyond that, what we did in my county is we introduced two training programs. We introduced something called Ukeru and that's spelled U-K-E-R-U. Ucaro is a trauma-informed alternative to restrained seclusion. Ucaro was born out of a place called Grafton Integrated Health in Virginia, and Grafton runs a lot of private special education day schools and residential facilities. And if you went back 15 years, you would find that Grafton used a lot of restrained seclusion. In fact, so much that they had uh, frequent injuries to staff, frequent injuries, the kids, they were in jeopardy of losing their workman's compensation insurance, lots -hmm. of things that were going on. They eventually had a new CEO that came in and and the new CEO said, we've got to do something different. This isn't working for us. It's not working for the kids. It's not working for our staff. And they ultimately tasked the team with developing an alternative intervention. And that alternative intervention became known as Ocaro. It helped them to completely eliminate restraint and seclusion from their special education day schools. These were schools where kids were going that had a lot of stress behaviors, were perceived as having a lot of challenging behaviors. These were kids that were coming from uh, public schools where they've not been successful, completely eliminated the practices. In their residential facilities, they completely eliminated seclusion and reduced restraint use significantly. And when I say significantly, down from hundreds or thousands down to probably uh, handfuls of the use of restraint. And again, getting back to that kind of more life or death situation. So they developed a training system and you know I'm not gonna go into the whole thing, but they have a physical intervention. It doesn't involve restraint and seclusion. It involves kind of specialized pads that they use only to really provide protection to staff. They're not used in an offensive way. You're not intended to pick up the pad and charge towards the kid. Now, I will say that... Anytime you do any kind of training, the chance of being misused or abused is out there. I have become aware of people that have misused things like Ucaro, or thought, oh, well, we'll just get pads and we'll push them into a the corner with a pad. That's not the idea here. Ucaro is a trauma-informed approach. So the idea is it begins with all the brain science moves through the intervention. We introduced Ucaro, but we also introduced collaborative proactive solutions. And of course, that's more of an upstream approach. Mm-hmm. And the idea with collaborative proactive solutions is how do we move from having crisis situations to understanding where kids are having difficulty to helping to work with kids to solve the things that become challenges that might become behaviors, you know, and that's all focused around Dr. Green's work around the idea that kids do well, if they can back to what we were talking about before, if a kid could do well, they would do well. So how do we focus on skills? So we brought those two things together in my uh, school district and significantly reduce and eliminate these practices. But that's not where it ends. I mean, there's so many other things that we can be doing. I'm a huge fan of Dr. Monadella Hook's work. Mm -hmm. uh, Beyond Behaviors is a really great roadmap to help I think even more the adults to shift their perspective on understanding that not all behavior is a choice, you know, and it's hard because we're human. So we take offense to behavior. We take it personally. We blame them. We use bad, you know, terms that describe them that they're being manipulative, they're limit testing, they're challenging, they're doing all these things when in fact, Their behaviors might be coming from stress from the bottom up, Mm -hmm. from trauma, from their nervous system. So Mona's work beyond behaviors is really fantastic, but there's a lot of other things out there. I'm a big fan of Dr. Stuart Schenker and self-reg, which gets to the fact that, you know, a lot of behaviors come from stress and, you know, how stress is manifest with someone that has trauma, that has disability might be in really difficult behaviors. Dr. Schenker's work is really fantastic. There's an approach in the UK uh, called low arousal. Uh, It was developed by a group called Studio 3. They're not over here in the U.S. yet, but probably will be at some point. And low arousal, the thing I like about low arousal is it really is putting a lot of focus on the caregiver and how much importance there is to the way we're responding to situations. They advocate for a very hands-off approach, but they also advocate for adults to do things that seem somewhat unnatural. Now, if a child is escalated, The more you can do to make yourself less of a threat, the better. Mm -hmm. So, in low arousal, you take a step or two back. You make yourself smaller. You try to continue to use a very calming voice. Those things are sometimes counterintuitive, but you know our brains, as Dr. Porges would say, we're seeking cues of threat and also cues of safety. We Mm -hmm. need to get rid of those cues of threat. So, low arousal is a really great method. And in fact, the book is something about uh, the reflective journey. It's like. How can we self-reflect and realize that we have a tremendous impact on situations, whether they escalate or don't escalate? And then, of course, you know, I'm also a fan of things like, you know, after something has happened, restorative approaches. And uh, of course, you know, Joe Brummer and, you know, not only takes the restorative approach, but takes the, okay, let's look at trauma-informed restorative approaches. And I think that's really important because there are a lot of restorative programs out there that are not trauma-informed and are very punitive. So at the end of the day, there are these principles that help people to shift away from these practices and the desire has to be there. The motivation has to be there, but there are a number of different training options out there to help in reducing and eliminating restraint seclusion. And we're actually actively trying to do more work in that area to hopefully at some point offer very specific training on how to help people do that. But Mm -hmm. there's a lot of great options out there now.
1: And I think it speaks to that The solution, the alternatives are not simple, but they do exist. And because they're a culture shift, it's not a one training checklist kind of Mm -hmm. answer. But once you've started to shift, either individually or as a school culture there's no looking back You've right. now shifted and you now understand and it opens all kinds of training opportunities and input. I mean, you're telling me things that I don't know and I'm making notes on low arousal and because I want to know more and those steps then make a whole lot of sense to me mm-hmm. because I've you know been able to make that shift.
3: You now, one other thing I'd add to that is, you know, thinking about, you know, the audience that you have for the podcast and people that are, you know, part of ATN, you know, you've got a fantastic audience of people that are really, truly trying to make those shifts to, yes. to be trauma informed and to be doing things to better support so many of our vulnerable kids. In fact, as I think back to the conference recently, and I think back to some of the wonderful presentations that were there by, you know, Matthew Portel and Joe and others, you know, one of the things that really stuck out in my mind, and I'm actually doing a presentation later this year, but is we have all this great intent behind being trauma informed, but we also at the same time, need to make sure we're not causing trauma. And if we're unintentionally inflicting trauma on kids, it goes counter to what we're trying to do with being trauma informed. So I'm a big advocate that, you know, it's kind of like first do no harm. So Mm -hmm. first make sure that we're not, you know, doing anything to further traumatize a kid that has had a really traumatic background. And I think that's a big shift that, you know, a lot of people need to be in looking at as well as how do I not only help To be informed, but make sure that I'm doing all that I can to prevent any additional trauma that might be happening to kids.
2: That's really powerful. And we've been talking a lot about schools today, but this resonates with parents. This resonates with the work that we do in the home because a lot of us were raised in an era where, you know, spankings were normal and the authoritarian parent and the demand for respect and Little understanding of the neuroscience and why the child is behaving in the first place. So I love the idea of parents really taking a moment to sit back and understand that when the parent is calm and creates that peace in the home, then they can co regulate with the child. You know, we talk a lot about that at ATN, but it really resonates here when we're talking about how we treat a child when a behavior arises, how we respond in that moment.
3: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, all the things that we're talking about here are absolutely connected to the things that parents will be doing as well. So what we're talking about in terms of restraint and seclusion may be something that's happening more likely in a a school setting. That said, You know, I know parents Mm -hmm. that have been encouraged to build seclusion spaces and use restraint.
0: restraint. And, And
3: I know there are very difficult situations, you know, that arise where there may be a lot of aggression and unsafe situations. And there may be situations where a restraint is necessary. But at the same time, a lot of what we're talking about are approaches that would be extremely helpful to parents, you know, Uh, the collaborative proactive solutions approach, great approach for parents, having parents, you know, shift away from kind of the reward and consequence models Mm -hmm. that we were all taught. There are a lot of parents out there that still use spankings and corporal punishment. And we still have 19 states that allow corporal punishment in schools. We know that there are, you know, many things out there happening to kids and there are far better things. I mean, uh, Dr. Delahook just put out a brand new book on parenting, which is fantastic. kind of goes into understanding, you know, brain and body differences and nervous system differences. And, you know, I have two children. And uh, as I read through the book, of course, it resonated with me because not every child is the same. And especially when we're working with a lot of our neurodivergent children, you know, there are some different ways that are going to be more effective. So all of this that we're talking about in terms of like how to better support kids, it's in schools, it's in home. And we've had parents that have been big fans of say collaborative problem solving or collaborative proactive solutions and have been doing that in their homes mm-hmm. and then bring a book to the IP meeting and say, Hey, you know, this has been working for us and can get shifts kind of made there sometimes too. I will say it seems entirely overwhelming. If you're an yes. educator right now listening to this and you're like, yes. Yeah, well, this is all great, but to change our culture in our school is just unimaginable. You know, I'll say that a single teacher in a single classroom can make a difference for the kids that you're working with. Mm -hmm. And while I want to see changes that can happen across the country, across the world, if we can make a difference for the 25 kids that you're working with we're heading the right direction. So wherever we can make progress, you know, if you pick up a book like Lost at School or Beyond Behaviors and begin incorporating those philosophies mm-hmm. in what you're doing, you're going to see success. And you know what? Other teachers might start coming in and going, well, hey, how come you're not having difficulty with this child? So don't feel like even as an individual teacher that you can't do something to make a difference. If you can't get the culture change that you need right now, begin making the difference where you can affect change.
2: Guy, how can people get a hold of you if they want more information or... We know you've got an upcoming training. How can they learn more about what you're talking about?
3: Sure. So we have a website, which is endseclusion.org. That's end seclusion.org. We're also on social media. Our Facebook is probably our most consistent platform. You know, we've got a lot of people on that channel. We're on Instagram and, and LinkedIn and other platforms. We have a lot on YouTube. We have a really great YouTube channel. Every two weeks we do interviews with various folks. In fact, you've both been guests on our Facebook before, yeah. or excuse me, our live events before, which are all on YouTube now as well. We are doing a training in early May. It's an all-day training, really intended for educators, for administrators, for parents, for anyone that's interested in learning more about restraint and seclusion and what the alternatives are, kind of taking this conversation, but going into a lot more depth. That's going to be a really great program. I'm really excited about that. But And of course, somebody is welcome, as always, to reach out to me directly. My email address is guy, G-U-I Stevens, and Stevens is S-T-E-P-H-E-N-S at endseclusion.org. People are always welcome to reach out to me directly, and I'm always happy to help if I can.
1: We can link all that in the show notes. So to close up real quickly, are there things that you want to talk to us about the Alliance is a part of, or the Alliance is getting behind, or things that if there are advocates listening that you want to give them a shout out as to things that you're working on and and hoping for?
3: What I would say is that there are Things happening across the country. This issue, I believe, is one that's getting more traction. Last year, we saw a couple of states moving forward with new laws, Illinois, Florida, Maine. This year, Maryland, which is my home state, we just were successful in getting a new law in effect, which will actually ban the use of seclusion in all public schools across the state, uh, greatly reduce it in the non-public schools as well add more accountability and oversight. There are other states that are working on things. We also have federal legislation that's out there. It's a bill called the Keeping All Students Safe Act. There have been many attempts to pass federal legislation going back well over a decade. We've yet to pass a bill. Now, the current bill, the Keeping All Students Safe Act, would eliminate the use of seclusion, eliminate prone and supine restraints, which are particularly dangerous forms of restraint. It would also add a lot of training. And when I hear people say, well, gee, you know, we can't because we don't know another way. That's why I think the Kimmel Student Safe Act is so important because mm-hmm. it would really focus on how do we provide training to better support, you know, teachers and staff and move away from these things. The bill has, I think, more co-sponsors than it's ever had on the House side of things. We're hopeful that it will move forward. But, you know, politics is always a difficult place. What I would say is if you've got people out there that are Interested in this to look it up. And if it's something that you support, reach out to your federal lawmakers, but we can also do things on a state level. We developed a advocacy toolkit last fall, really around helping people to push for better state laws. There are things that we can do. Our state laws are a mess. If you look across the country, Mm -hmm. some states have fairly good laws. Some states have very weak laws. Some states have banned certain practices. Others have not. This is a civil rights issue and our rights should not vary as we go from state to state. If you picked up and move tomorrow, you shouldn't have different rights for your children or for yourself. Yes. And, you know, again, if you're an educator, I mean, there's a lot of training out there. Reach out, always happy to talk to people. And there are things that we haven't addressed here and you've got concerns like, well, how would we get around this? You know, connect with me and I'd love to talk to you.
1: We will definitely put all your contact in the show notes so that folks that are listening to this episode can find you quickly and get their questions over to you. Guy, thank you so much. We could probably talk for another hour. We definitely appreciate everything you said. I mean, my head was about to nod off because you truly are a kindred spirit in your belief in trauma-informed and what you believe that to be and all of the relationship pieces. And yeah, just so much of what you We appreciate you. We appreciate what you're out there doing.
3: It's mutual. I mean, the fact that we've got so many groups out there doing such amazing work and being fairly new in this space you know, it's been so helpful to be able to work with organizations like ATN and others to, you know, try to promote change. And I look at this as like we're all in this together and you know, we can do things that'll make a difference. So I appreciate the opportunity to come here and talk to you today.
1: We love having you and we'll probably have you back one of these days because we would love to talk more.
2: As we start back to school this fall, we know that this year has many of the same challenges of last school year. We see you and all you're juggling and trying to create for this new school year. Managing behaviors is likely at the top of your list. If it is, please join us for Compliance to Compassion, our one-day virtual event that the Attachment and Trauma Network is co-sponsoring with the Alliance Against Seclusion and Restraint. It's a full day of professional development learning on Friday, October 14th, and will be headlined by Alfie Cohn the author who you may know from his book, Punished by Rewards. We're going to learn from some of the leaders of the trauma-informed school movement, including Jim Sporleader himself, as well as Principal James Moffat and Diane Carreri, co-author of The Reset Process. And maybe some experts not as familiar to you, Dr. Stuart Shanker and Susan Hopkins of the MEHRIT Center in Canada and their work on self-regulation and Emma Vanderclift and Norman Kunk of the Broadreach Training and Resources and their work in de-escalation strategies and collaborative problem solving. Registration is open and the link is on ATN's website and in these show notes. Early bird pricing is only $149 for a whole eight hours of training. Mark your calendar for Friday, October 14th, and don't forget to register during our early bird pricing, which ends August 19th.
0: This has been another episode of Regulated and Relational. Next time, Ginger and Julie's guest will be Becky Haas, a renowned trauma-informed training expert who will be talking about the role that school resource officers can play in trauma-informed schools. A special thanks to Lorraine Schneider, our editor, and Joe Kramer for donating our music. For more information about the Attachment Trauma Network, visit our website at attachtrauma.org. Show notes and upcoming episodes will be available on our website and through anchor.fm. I'm Danny Pancratz. Thanks for listening.